As we prepare uh, to begin um, the first of three catechism lessons on the Lord's Supper from the Heidelberg Catechism, uh, we are going to read uh, from 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, We'll pick up there at verse 17, uh, one of the key junctures in the New Testament where uh, the apostle uh, recounts to the church the institution of the Supper um, by Christ at um, the night before his death. So this is God's holy word. This can be found on page 958 of our Pew Bibles, verse 17 of chapter 11. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part. For there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry. Another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you for this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry... Let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. It's God's holy word for us this morning. And I invite you to turn with me to the back of our Trinity Psalter hymnal. We'll turn to uh, page 884. Find there our Heidelberg Catechism. And it's teaching on the Lord's Supper. This is uh, Lord's Day uh, 28, beginning at question 75. We've had two lessons on uh, baptism, and we will read uh, these three rather lengthy questions and answers responsively together. How does the Holy Supper remind and assure you that you share in Christ's one sacrifice on the cross and in all his benefits? In this way... Christ has commanded me and all believers to eat this broken bread and to drink this cup in remembrance of him. 
With this command come these promises. First, as surely as I see with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken for me and the cup shared with me, so surely his body was offered and broken for me and his blood poured out for me on the cross. Second, as surely as I receive from the hand of him who serves and taste with my mouth the bread and cup of the Lord given me as sure signs of Christ's body and blood. So surely he nourishes and refreshes my soul for eternal life with his crucified body and poured out blood. What does it mean to eat the crucified body of Christ and to drink his poured out blood? It means to accept with a believing heart the entire suffering and death of Christ. And in this way, to receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life. But it means more. Through the Holy Spirit, who lives both in Christ and in us, we are united more and more to Christ's blessed body. And so, although He is in heaven and we are on earth, we are flesh of His flesh and bone of His bone. And we forever live on and are governed by one Spirit, as the members of our body are by one soul. Where does Christ promise to nourish and refresh believers with his body and blood as surely as they eat this broken bread and drink this cup? In the institution of the Lord's Supper, the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, This is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This promise is repeated by Paul in these words. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Thus far, our catechism lesson this morning. Well, as we turn now to the Lord's Supper, we continue in uh, the gratitude section of our uh, catechism. Uh, The Heidelberg Catechism is divided into three parts. The first, teaching us how great our sin and misery is. Uh, The second, teaching us uh, what God has done through Christ, His Son, to deliver us from our sin and misery. And the third part, how we are to respond in gratitude. So we are still talking about God's part. Uh, The sacraments are something that God does for us to save us, uh, together with uh, the rest of our understanding of the church. And it is not surprising uh, that our Heidelberg Catechism uh, uh, presents a very uh, Protestant view of the Supper. It was a point of contention in the 16th century at the time of the Protestant Reformation. 
And uh, these three questions, I think, broadly outline, uh, trace uh, three aspects. Um, I believe this is in the outline I put in the bulletin. Uh, The assurance of the supper, the reception of the supper, and the institution of the supper. So the assurance of the supper is basically, uh, as the Protestant slogan would have it, Christ alone. Christ alone. God is the active party in the supper. It is about what he has done to save us in the cross. The reception of the supper is by faith alone. Faith alone. We receive this bread and wine. And to receive them with a believing heart uh, is to receive the suffering and death of Christ for our forgiveness of sins and for our eternal life. And finally, the institution of the supper takes us back uh, via scripture alone. The gospel promise of the sacrament is Christ's own promise in scripture. And so we want to go back to the words of Jesus, to the words of his apostles. uh, Christ alone, faith alone, scripture alone. Important uh, summarizing slogans of the Protestant Reformation. And these three questions will highlight those aspects of the supper. Now, uh, this is one of the longest Lord's Days, uh, a Sunday of three questions in the entire catechism. And like I said, it's because it was such a hotly contested issue. Uh, The catechism will have eight questions on the Lord's Supper. So this is the first of three uh, lessons. And uh, along with its other teaching on the sacraments in general, this is almost 20% of the Heidelberg Catechism. Which is really quite remarkable. One-fifth of our Christian faith, as our uh, forefathers in Heidelberg, the Reformed faith, taught, sought to teach to uh, uh, new believers, new Reformed believers, children. Almost a fifth, uh, by word count, is about the sacraments. It's an important part of the Christian life, which uh, many in America, many in the modern church, because uh, we tend to be influenced by revivalism, because we tend to be influenced by individualism, by anti-institutionalism, we don't give the sacraments the care, attention, thought uh, that many, many of our fathers in the faith going back to the time of Christ have and done. Calvin tellingly called uh, the the Lord's Supper, um, the sacraments, in fact, The visible gospel. We have a verbal gospel, a word-based gospel. But these are visible signs and seals to help us understand and receive the gospel promise. Uh, The sacraments don't give us anything that the preaching of the word uh, uh, does not. They don't give us anything different. They give us Christ and Him crucified. And we mentioned this last week. Question 75 is repeating what has become something of, of a mantra throughout this sacramental section. Uh, they point us and assure us that the one sacrifice on the cross is for our blessing and benefit. They're intended to confirm and strengthen our faith through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so they were quite central, not just because uh, there were differing theological or philosophical viewpoints about what happened to the bread in the course of the supper. There's a core theological set of issues involved with the sacraments that gets right to the heart of the gospel. Uh, Martin Luther, in particular, objected to the medieval mass because it was understood to be an offering or a re-sacrifice that the church, that the priests uh, performed and placed upon the altar. It was understood to be a meritorious work that we did today. And so the arrow of the medieval mass was, as it were, upward, pointing up to heaven. We are giving something to God. And this really struck him as, as fundamentally Opposite, not only to biblical sacraments, but to the gospel itself, where God is giving us a gift. 
The Reformed uh, developed a slightly different concern, though they shared Luther's concern. They objected to the related issue of the idolatry of the Mass. That as the bread was conceived to be uh, transformed, transubstantiated into the, the physical body of Christ, and the church literally bowed before and prayed to the bread and the wine. Um, furthermore, as, as, as the elements of the supper became the focus of the medieval church, and in a sense lifted up and set apart um, from God's people, uh, the elements were taken away from the people. It was actually extremely rare for the medieval church for the congregation to celebrate and join in the Mass. The command of Christ, the Reformed believed, was subverted where he said, Do this in remembrance of me. This was openly violated by the church when she celebrated the Mass, um, again in a medieval setting, with the priests often facing the altar symbolically and really, and no one was able to participate. It's important to realize uh, that we're not just criticizing uh, a 14th or a 13th century view here. In American Christianity, um, though we continue to have or have had a strong anti-Roman Catholic bias in our nation's history in the church, um, we participate in some of the same errors regarding the sacrament. Many um, evangelical believers see communion as um, if it is merely a memorial, it is something that we offer to God. We are conjuring up um, feelings. Uh, it's something that instead of uh, driving us outside of ourselves, we look inward to see if we feel sufficiently moved by this recreation, reenactment of the death of Christ. And likewise, uh, one of the other things we see in churches where the sacrament is, is less important, less thought about, is less frequent participation. It's taken from the people. Um, in terms of the frequency with which it is celebrated. So the Reformed tradition, the teaching of our catechism, is, I think, somewhat of a corrective to these errors that are uh, perennial errors. They always arise. And the catechism starts from this idea. It is a command from Christ with promises. A command with promises. As surely as I see with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken for me and the cup shared with me, so surely his body was offered and broken for me and his blood poured out for me on the cross. This is one of the, the powerful teaching points of the Protestant Reformation. Not only that Christ died for sinners, but Christ died for me. The comforting power of knowing that his death was for my sins. And this is a picture of the gospel. It is a sign, something that we can see and perceive, and then that directs us where we want to go, or where we need to go, rather, <laughs> to Christ. It's a sign that directs us outside of ourselves to what God has done to save us. And then notice this second uh, part of the answer, 75. As surely as I receive from the hand of him who serves and taste with my mouth uh, the bread and cup of the Lord, given as sure signs of Christ's body and blood, so surely he nourishes and refreshes my soul for eternal life with his crucified body and poured out blood. It is a receiving. Uh, the servant of Christ puts food in my mouth. This isn't our uh, common practice here at Christ Reformed, uh, but I grew up actually in a Roman Catholic church, and I think there would be probably many Protestant churches at this time where, where the bread is actually placed in your mouth by the minister. That seems a little awkward and weird, a little bit... Too, too close, right, for us today, unsanitary. But uh, the idea that literally you are a babe in Christ being fed. You are fully passive and receptive. 
It is a seal, a seal, a tangible thing broken or or received rather that that points as a token that you can exchange. Um, You know, if you've ever kids, this is way, way before your time, I realized. But when I was a kid or a teenager, there were video arcades where you put quarters in the machines to play the video game. And they were big, massive things. They couldn't fit in your pocket. And, and you would get tokens in some of the worst arcades. You couldn't just use quarters. You had to go put your dollar in the machine and they'd give you little tokens. But when you had that token, it was as good as 25 cents. You knew that you could exchange it for a game, for a play, right? So this is a token. It's something which Christ gives us, which is not the thing itself. But it is exchanged. It has equal value. And notice the attentiveness here to the senses in our catechism. I see with my eyes. I taste with my mouth. I receive from the hand. This is the kind of language that the Apostle John uses in his first epistle. He opens the epistle. Uh, you have probably uh, familiar with these words. That which was from the beginning, John writes, which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest. We have seen it. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you. Now, John, in an analogous way, is saying, I have touched Jesus. I've cooked fish with him. I've sat down to a meal with him. I've caught fish with him. I've sailed with him. And he's testifying to the church decades after Christ has died and ascended to heaven. He said, this gospel is true. I was there. I saw it. And so it's a, it's a confirmatory uh, aspect of the supper. And the supper also confirms these things with a covenant background. We don't have a lot of time to go into this. Maybe in coming weeks we will. But in Exodus 24 at Mount Sinai, God comes and brings the law. He says, I am your Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. He enters into covenant with his people. He creates them a nation of priests, a holy uh, nation. And then in Exodus 24, this covenant, these promises are sealed with a meal. Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, Aaron's sons, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. Now remember, the mountain was death. They had to make a barricade around the mountain when God's holiness descended to give the law. But here we see that that holiness has been provided, that God's people have access to come and sit. And that's the the symbolism of that covenant meal. It has its roots even before then in the making of covenants through the, the severing of animals. And the animal would be consumed together as a sign of that bond. Turning now to, to this next question, 76. Uh, what does it mean? Uh, what is in the reception? And in particular, what does it mean to eat the crucified body of Christ and to drink his poured out blood? This was the heart and the nub of the Reformation debate about what happened to the bread and wine. How was Christ communicated to us uh, through them? To take the sacrament means to accept it with a believing heart. And this is why uh, we fence the table. It is very important that the sacrament is for uh, believers. What I mean by fencing the table. I mean that we celebrate the supper and believers are welcome to come and receive the blessing of their faith. The sacrament of the Lord's Supper is not a sacrament that converts people. 
Baptism is a sacrament that symbolizes and seals new birth and conversion. So unbelievers, non-members of the church, come to baptism and they're made members of the church through the sacrament. The Lord's Supper, though it points to the same Christ, the same gospel, is fundamentally different in that it is a confirmatory sacrament. It takes believers, it welcomes and invites believers to receive Christ uh, in a new way, in in a covenant renewal ceremony. So, our catechism says here in the middle of this answer, Through the Holy Spirit, who lives both in Christ and in us, We are united more and more to Christ's blessed body. And so, although he is in heaven and we are on earth, we are flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone. And we forever live on and are governed by one spirit as the members of our body are by one soul. So the spirit unites us. The spirit unites us. He uses the metaphor in that last line here of our our body, which has fingers and hands and two legs and two arms. But all of these little parts are united because there is one soul. There is one soul in the body. To accept with a believing heart is an act of faith. So the, the challenge here and the debate in the 16th century, and I won't take a deep dive in this context, but I'm happy to discuss it with you, is that Christ ascended to heaven. How are we united with his flesh? And the medieval church and the Lutheran church in part, though slightly differently following them, said Christ must come down and his body must become a part of the bread. Either the bread is turned into the body or he's there with the body, the physical body of Christ. And our reformed churches said, no, he is in heaven. Uh, I'll come back to this, but uh, as the apostle says, we proclaim his death till he comes. Well, he has to come. (laughs) He's not here. We confess the real absence of Christ. He's in heaven. And our catechism in the footnotes here, and and these are in the original text of the catechism, marginal notes, points heavily to John chapter 6. This was an exegetical battleground. John 6, 35, Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Notice what he says. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. You see, Jesus in John's gospel talks about coming to Christ as the act of faith. Talks about believing in Christ as that which feeds and nourishes the soul. 640, Jesus continues, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son, again, that's a a metaphor for faith, and believes in Him should have eternal life. So, uh, later in 650, when Jesus says, This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. It's a direct analogy to what he said before. If anyone comes to me, if anyone believes on me, if anyone looks on me, he has eternal life. And so Jesus is is drawing the, the analogy of the manna that fell in the wilderness. He's saying, I am the true bread of life. He's not pointing to some magic in the sacrament, which, of course, had not yet been instituted, which the people could not have understood. But he's talking about faith. And this faith is a real, could be analogized as nourishing upon the life that is in the body and blood of Christ. To receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life is the essence of what we receive in the supper. 
to be united more and more to Christ, our catechism says. The Spirit used this to draw us into greater and deeper union, despite this distance between heaven and earth. Although he's in heaven, he's not here now. We are united by the one Spirit. John 6, for my flesh is true food, my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Again, this language was very realistic. Do do we need to become cannibals, right? And the medieval church would point to this language. Jesus says we have to eat his flesh. But he says what's going on here is abiding. And throughout John's gospel, abiding is trusting, believing. 1 Corinthians 12 Uh, After the passage we read, Paul continues, For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. I think Paul is speaking sacramentally here. He's talking about baptism, and he's talking about the one cup. It's the spirit that feeds and nourishes us in this supper. And at the same time, the sacrament conveys the very real truth that the body of Christ is where our salvation is found. His physical body is necessary. It had to be broken. His physical blood had to be shed on the cross to turn away God's wrath for our sins. This brings us to the institution of the supper. The third point. The Lord Jesus Christ is the author. We don't need to add to what he established. And as we know, uh, through the history of the church, often different traditions have arisen um, around the supper. And just looking at the teaching that is found here and going through it quite quickly in 1 Corinthians 11, the night that he was betrayed. This is significant, of course, because it's the last, very last celebration of the Passover. It reminds us that there is a pattern of promise and fulfillment here. The relationship of the Old Testament to the New. The shadows have passed away. And he says this is a new covenant, a new uh, testament at the time of his death. It points to the death of Christ and to the inauguration of something new. Jesus took bread. He took bread with his hand. He didn't turn the bread into his body. He took a piece of bread as a fitting sign and seal uh, pointing to his body. Um, As some of the reformers would say, I think this might be a quote from Ursinus, although I failed to attribute it in my notes here. Jesus didn't lie upon the table. He sat at the table. When he had given thanks for the completion of his work on earth, with the exception of his death and resurrection yet to come, he broke it. He broke bread, not some invisible thing, but bread to signify his sufferings. The communion and the union. The bread which we break is a communion of the body of Christ. Again, the Passover is in the background here as a covenant meal. Where the blood of the Passover lamb was literally that which turned aside the wrath of God in uh, the Exodus. And uh, Christ is saying, just as the household would all eat one lamb, those units were dictated by the lamb they could consume jointly together. So to the church, we eat of one bread and we are unified in participating in that sacrament. Take and eat is addressed to all. The supper is not a spectator sport. It is for people to come. This is my body. It's, it is, uh, uh, the cup is the New Testament. There is a sacramental union, as Augustine spoke of it here, between the sign and the thing signified. By faith, because God promises to be with the bread and with the wine for those who believe. 
He promises to give all the blessings of Christ's broken body and shed blood to those who believe, who receive rightly these elements. By trusting and believing in that promise, when we receive the bread, we truly receive Christ. When we drink of the cup, we truly drink of His blood for our salvation. This do in remembrance of me. There is very little that Christ commanded we do when we gather for worship. This is at the center of New Testament Christian worship. This is at the heart of the New Covenant. And as it sets aside the priesthood, everything that belonged to the old order of things, thinking of Hebrew 8, we have now such a high priest seated at the right hand of the throne in majesty. Notice where Hebrews is pointing us. Look to heaven. He's a minister in the holy places. That's the true tent. That's where our worship points us now. It sets aside everything that came before it. Drink all of this cup of the new covenant it's in his blood as often as you eat this bread it suggests and recommends a frequent celebration i don't mean to to enter into debate here about whether we must uh, that's not our position here at christ reform celebrate each time we gather for worship um, john calvin did take that view when the word is preached ideally the sacrament will be there to seal it and confirm it because they support one another um, that is not our view but there there is a fitness to that You show forth uh, the Lord's uh, death till he come. Finally, uh, I'd be remiss if I didn't encourage you over the coming weeks to take a look at the Belgic Confession of Faith. It's a few pages earlier here in the back of our Trinity Psalter hymnal. It has a really wonderful and rich explication of the Sumper that complements what we see in our catechism. Um, The Belgic Confession of Faith, again, 868 in our Trinity Psalter hymnal, talks about how the Supper nourishes and sustains us. And it uses this analogy that that we have two lives in us. We have a physical life, we have a physical body that needs bread and water, and we have a spiritual life that needs and survives literally on Christ. As Jesus says, uh, I am the vine, you are the branches. Like like, uh, an organic uh, agricultural metaphor, right? We have a tree out in front of our yard that when we were on vacation this summer, it's in the median in front of our house. Uh, the top of the tree blew over in the wind and fell on our next door neighbor's car parked right in front of us and uh, totaled their car. And we saw pictures on the Internet from vacation. We thought, "Ooh, that was close, you know, five feet away. Um, still picking little bits of glass out of the stones in our front yard. But when that broke off, two other branches high up in the tree also broke, but they got stuck. Uh, actually, more than two. But they're still up there. And so there's now this tree up there and the leaves are all dead because it's no longer connected. It's just hanging there. It's dead because it's not connected. Uh, a couple of these branches blew down yesterday, so we're now on sort of pins and needles. When, when's the rest of these massive branches going to fall on our heads? But we feed on Christ as we feed on bread and wine. We feed on, on the vine. We are the branches. He is living bread when he's appropriated and received spiritually by faith. The confession says he did this to testify to us that just as truly as we take and hold the sacraments in our hands and eat and drink it in our mouths, by which our life is then sustained so truly, we receive into our souls for our spiritual life the true body and true blood of Christ, our only Savior. If you really want to get in the weeds with me after this service, I'll talk about the difference between the Latin word true, which is emphasized there, very, verily, verily, veritas, true, and the Latin word realitas, or really. Is Christ really received or is he truly received? 
Well, for a good 16th century theologian, the word realitas talked about thingishly. Race was stuff. So if you say you really received Christ, you're saying you received his flesh. If you're saying you truly received Christ, as our church taught, you're truly participating spiritually in the ascended Christ. I told you I wouldn't go in the weeds. I dipped into the weeds right there. This banquet, the confession continues, is a spiritual table at which Christ communicates himself to us with all his benefits. In this way, Christ remains always seated at the right hand of God, but he never refrains on that account to communicate himself to us through faith. And so the confession somewhat concludes with this expression, we do not go wrong when we say that what is eaten is Christ's own natural body and what is drunk is his own blood. But the manner in which we eat it is not by the mouth, but by the spirit through faith. This is a spiritual blessing. We don't receive mouths with stomachs or teeth. We receive him with our hearts, with our minds, by faith. And so we should be content with what Christ has blessed us with in this supper. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your supper today, send forth your spirit that we might uh, partake rightly and come in faith and see there our crucified and risen Lord and our need for his life, the life that is in him. He is the vine and we are but branches. Help us and unite us more and more to him and confirm that union through your word and through your sacrament, as you have instructed us in Jesus' name. Amen.